want to say something about the reality of life as we know it. Uh, we talk about things that some could scoff at and dismiss as uh, fanciful and wishful thinking. How is it possible that somebody could have joy when, finish the sentence, whatever you're going through? Is that possible? Or are there exceptions or exemptions? That doesn't work for people like you. Remember, you didn't, I don't know, finish that sentence. Or is it a statement that's supposed to stagger our senses and say, no, I'm here for you. In fact, I left my throne, another hymn that we sing tells us. It was a kingly throne. I left the right hand seat next to the father. Doesn't get better. And I came to a dusty, dirty planet to reach out to people that are soiled and broken. And, and I did it for reasons we're going to talk about this morning. If you're stuck in that, don't, don't feel bad. Don't kick dirt clods and assume that you made a mistake coming. I hope just the opposite. And you who are joining us from other places, if you've never been to a church setting or heard these words, they're true. I'm not making them up. I don't do that. It wouldn't change your life. You might leave impressed but not impacted. So to that end, I want us to come to this moment and realize something. We are in the second week of Advent. And uh, it got, got me thinking, so is it an assumption on my part we all know what the word Advent means? And I thought I would take a second and talk about the meaning of Advent. The word simply means uh, arrival. I don't know if you knew that. It's not a, it's kind of a plain word. You would uh, maybe say of an airplane pulling up to a uh, a gate at a terminal, they have the advent. Only there's a little twist to it in, um, in lots of ways, actually. The twist is that when whatever it is, when someone or something arrives for the first time, or they arrive in a very impactful way to people everywhere, then we don't use arrival. We dub it advent. You almost feel a difference, don't you? Arrival's one thing, but Advent is much bigger. And our lives are full of examples of what I'm describing to you. The fact is, a bunch of things that have become a part of our now daily lives uh, began as, well, Advents. For example, take um, cars. Uh, Henry Ford comes to mind. I don't know if he was the first, but it was a mass production thing that changed the lives of, well, how many of you have ever driven a car? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a game changer. And the first time it came, it was an advent in every way. Uh, you can go from cars to computers, and you can um, take it to smartphones. Some of you are right now on Google doing things you shouldn't do because of that. No, I'm just kidding you. Uh, but, you know, smartphones. I still remember Debbie and I were about to get our latest, our phones had worn out a number of years ago, and we went to an AT&T store. We were with them at that time, and uh, the guy says, he said, we need new phones, and I really like my flip phone, so I'll take one of those again. 
and there really weren't any other options. And he stopped us, remember? And he said, hey, I would hold up just a little bit. If they're not broken, keep using them because there's this new phone coming. So far, the name we're hearing is smartphone. How many have a smartphone today? <laughs> How many have a flip phone? You're weird if you do, but it's cool. It's really cool. So phones, I, let's go back a click or two to televisions. They're part of our lives. How many have more than one in their home? You shouldn't. That's ridiculous, okay? Um, but we, we have televisions. And by the way, I remember our first McCracken family television. I'm not talking about the Mac 5. I'm talking about the previous McCrackens. And I was the caboose of that clan. And I remember my, um, I was watching Let's Make a Deal. And I, I was a little boy. And I was so stoked because the, the thing they were going to give away was a console television. I have you raising your hands. Well, this is like getting exercise. How many remember consoles? Okay, console television is about as wide as this stage. I exaggerate. But for sure, the communion table, it was that wide, and it was mostly furniture, like wood. Had nothing to do with the TV except right in the middle. There was this big... Sort of the eye-bulging look to it, and definitely black and white. And it came in and went out. It came in and went, and you could never, I remember trying to watch Lost in Space. <laughs> Don't laugh at that. It's better than Star Wars any day. But the, we couldn't get the television to work, and I just burst into tears. I, I came apart. I was just like, oh, my life is wrecked. What are we going to do, you know? So console TVs was the start of, well, we have, a, we have a flat screen TV that's as wide as you want. Uh, the list could go on and on, and it's kind of an entertaining list. But here's the deal. Like TVs and computers and smartphones and cars, when they were first introduced, they were described as Advent, the advent of of those products. All of that applies now to Christian theology uh, when referring, of course, to Jesus Christ. Uh, his coming and his future second coming, you with me? His first coming and his future second coming are referred to as Advent's. So today, I want us to explore that a second. It's just mostly devotional. It's to be short. But I want you to, to take, go with me. Let's transport ourselves back to um, Isaiah the prophet's words in 740 B.C. To put it in plain speak, 740 years before the first coming of Jesus. And I, my Bible's open to Isaiah chapter 9. I want you to turn there, if you would. Uh, find it on your app, whatever. Uh, go to that. And it's what I think I've made clear would be known as, correctly, the first advent of Jesus Christ. These words are familiar to many that we're about to read. What is less familiar is that they predated the first advent by almost eight centuries. 
a long time before the words that make up Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2. 800 or eight year, uh, eight centuries rather, before that, a baby was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And, and it's, it was strangely similar to the first advent are these words that were spoken by Isaiah. They describe not only the day to come, as he wrote, but I want to challenge you without, I don't need to leverage this at all. I just need to say, hey, make a connection to this day. In other words, we're about to read words that may very well describe the day in which we live. Chapter 9. Look how it begins even. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. I told you, make a connection. I don't need to stop every sentence, but you're making it already. How much gloom fills our world today? Isaiah, in 740 B.C., said, The day is coming, and there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. And that would describe most people in the day of Jesus. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Think of those as two tribes that represent the northern kingdom. At that time, in the divided kingdom after Solomon, the northern kingdom was made up of ten tribes. They're collectively described here as Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the future, look at the change. He will honor Galilee of the nations. Now, you can take any map of Israel today, and you will still find the largest body of water is Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. It's really a lake, but we'll call it a Sea of Galilee. And where was Jesus uh, raised? In Nazareth. And where is Nazareth? Right next to Galilee, way up north. Now you're getting hints here. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, west of the Jordan, east of the Mediterranean Sea. Now he gets very personal about his predictive words that had eight centuries before they're fulfilled the first time. The people walking in darkness, again, what's our world today? What are the people that are close to you today? Your family. You. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. That's a way of saying it will be both personal and incredibly public. The land described as deep darkness my paraphrase would be, no one will miss it. There is this great light that has dawned. And then he gives us some illustrations that make a lot of sense if you're connecting to all this. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. In both cases, you sow seed and you wait. You know it's a season later. You never reap in the same season you sow. It's 
some cases much later. The same is true with war. Most wars take time. And most victories uh, don't come overnight. Occasionally that's, that's changed with modern warfare. But warriors rejoice when the battle has finally been won, when there's a declared victory and plunder, which always went to the victor, is dispersed, divided. And then he gives more examples. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. If you took the time in every one of these and look back, you could go to Judges, the book of Judges. And Gideon was a deliverer. We know him as Judges in the Bible, but he was a deliverer. He was a, we would say today, a hero. There was a serious problem. God tapped his shoulder and said, I want you to go take care of the Midianites. They're bad hombres. They're bad people. Deal with them and, and get rid of them. And Gideon did. Remember how he smashed the jars and they shouted for the for the Lord and for you know it was it was a cool thing. And sure enough, and there's even a song, Gideon fought the Lord, Gideon fought. Anyway, you, you remember from vacation Bible school. So that's what he's saying. As in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. It's a great description of people today. Largely, it's not a, a slavery situation, but it's the bondage of the greatest enslavement of all time, sin, right? If you sin, you're a slave to sin, Jesus said. John chapter 8, check it out. So he shatters this burden that's across the shoulders of the people that oppresses them. Look at verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It will be over and done. It will be fuel for the fire. If you're an audience in this day, 740 years before, you have no idea what he's talking about. But you know it's, it's something. And, and it's something big. And something's coming. There's a, an arrival that's going to happen. They didn't know if it was next week or next month or centuries later. But it's, it's coming, and it's big. And that's, that's got to raise the question, how are you going to do this, God? What means are you going to take? Look at verse 6. These are the words you're familiar with. For to us, a child... I'm just being honest here. You're talking about winning a war. You're talking about Midian's defeat. We can look back in time and see that happen. A, a child is born. To us, a son is given. You hear the pronouns there? To us, a son is given. And the government will be on a child's shoulders? Reading that right? And he will be called. He has a name. Many names, actually. Wonderful Counselor. I love the second one in the list. Mighty God. There's a Hebrew construct 
that can actually be translated hero God. I like it. I, I like heroes. Why do you need a hero? Because everything's dark and we live in a land of darkness and because there's no fixing it any other way. I need a hero. And I'm not going to sing the song, but I need a hero. You get it? More, it's, it's for a female's voice anyway. Um, so he will be called Wonderful Counselor because life is confusing and we need that. He will be a mighty God or a heroic God. He will be an everlasting father. That means it's more than four or eight year term. It's not a political solution. An everlasting father. And look at this DNA, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Doesn't run out. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it a certain way with justice and righteousness from that time on. And I hope you circle the word forever. Who has the power? Who has the authority to say things like this? I cannot think of a single human leader in all of history that if they said this, wouldn't be scoffed at and mocked and you'd just turn them off. But we're told something different at the end of verse 7. I'll tell you how this happens. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. You cannot read those words as we did this morning. If it bothers you that I interrupted at every other sentence or word, um, I just can't contain it. I just I want to make sure that we get this. And, and read it again. Read it in several translations. It just gets more colorful and more personal and impactful. But you can't read this or hear me read it this morning without sensing something big. Remember, almost eight, eight centuries before anything big had happened. These are people living like this. Burdened. Weighed down. Hopeless. Um, there, there's got to be something or someone big. tell of a truly impactful event. That's why some people have asked, where do you find out the details? Well, you can go to Matthew and Luke, chapters 1 and 2 in both cases, and you can read the real-time details of this event. They're consistent yet strangely curious accounts of Messiah's arrival biggest standout thing of all he came like we read as a king a baby king really I know power I know strength he 
all do. We have a definition of that. But how many of us ever point to a baby? A baby king? Not a warrior king? The king described by Isaiah came, but as a baby? Why am I surprised by that? Well, we have we had three babies in our lives. And in every case, these labels fit. They are weak. They are vulnerable and totally dependent. I like that portrayal in this particular scene. They're totally dependent. And can I even say, without offending you, helpless. Now, we all want to go, no, yeah, but he's God. He could, you know, somebody messed with him even as a baby. He smote him. We miss the point, don't we? There's something here. Uh, Philip Yancey is a writer that has held my attention for decades. I read everything he writes. Don't agree with 100%, but 99.7, I would say. And he was marveling at the majesty of this baby idea, the baby king. Uh, I think it's... um, So he asked what many of us have asked. Here's the deal. If Jesus came to reveal God to us, can you hold on to that premise for a sec? If Jesus came, which is really the biggest question people ask about this person that came. No one denies that. If he came to reveal God to us, then Yancey finishes his question What do we learn about God from the first Christmas? Okay? I just want to give you a couple of my impressions in answer to that question. He came to reveal himself, to reveal to us God. And and what is it about what he revealed? on that first Christmas that's supposed to impact us. Here's the first. He took a humble approach to make contact with humans. If you're God, and if you're a king, uh, you could come that way. But he came... As a king and as a baby king. Um, so here's the deal that strikes me. Uh, royalty and, and celebrity and nobility don't live that way. That's not what important, impressive, influential people do. They just don't do that. Have you seen a chauffeur standing at an airport with a sign and somebody's name? Has it ever been your name? Bunch of boring people, right? All of us. I uh, 
I got off an airplane at Dulles Airport back when Debbie and I were just engaged. And um, that was my second visit back. And I get off, there's the mid-terminal, and then there's buses bring you to the main terminal. And I come out of the gate, and as I did, there's a series of chauffeurs. This is Washington, D.C., so a lot of people, like, apparently can't drive. They get drivers. So, and then I'm, I'm looking, and they've got all electric signs, like lit-up signs. And it'll be the initial of the person and then their last name. And not kidding you, I see the name S. McCracken on one of them. <laughs> right? I walked straight up to the guy, and I said, hi, guys, I'm here. And I have no idea about this, right? I'm expecting to see Debbie. And I'm like, I'm here. And they're kind of looking at me a little surprised. And they said, you're alone? I said, oh, no. And I'm thinking in the moment, she has four brothers, and they are cool dudes. And they probably pooled their money and thought, let's bring it on, you know, because we were five years of dating, and finally I got over myself and um, asked her to marry me. And um, they had a sign at our engagement. The crack, that was my name, is back for Dean. That was her maiden name. The crack is back for Dean, the queen, and this time he brought the diamond ring. Okay? So I'm thinking they're just pouring it on, right? It's a big deal for me. And I'm saying, uh, she'll be here in a minute. And they go, she'll? She? And just as the, we're, we're looking at each other confused, there's two guys that walk up and go, hi, we're McCracken. They got off my same airplane from Los Angeles. And I'm like, <clears throat> fraud, <laughs> you know. I mean, what, who are you, you know? And, and so there's this little who is it. Just then, Debbie walks up. I said, hold on. What is this about? And the chauffeur says, well, I'm supposed to pick up Steve McCracken, uh, an attorney from Los Angeles with his uh, law partner. And, and, and I go, is that you? And they go, yeah. And, they, and I said, well, I'm Steve McCracken. And I'm not kidding you. I said, what's your middle name? Prove it, you know, kind of thing. What's your middle name? He says, Clark, S.C. McCracken. My middle name is Charles. I'm like, bro, let's rock, paper, scissors this dude right now. <laughs> you know what? We drove home in a Mazda. Okay, the, the chauffeur wasn't for me. It's never been for me. Um, big deal people get those things. But the Bible insists Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider himself equal with God, his equality with God, something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, I'm quoting from Philippians 2. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. He wasn't a weird-looking baby. He was normal. Human likeness. And being found 
Later in his life, in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Even death on the cross. We get asked every year, why do you have the nativity scene and still the cross? that not the whole point of him coming? Years ago, I was a college pastor in Southern Cal. And I, um, I had a, a real uh, college students. I love them. I still do. They are passionate people. And you can, you can stoke the fire of vision and passion in their hearts, and they are, they'll show up at the airport tonight and go wherever you told them, you, you could be used mightily by God. You ready to be all in? They're like, heck yeah, let's do it. That's how they do. And so we would send college students all over the world. We would send them not just for a short 10-week, 10 10-day 10 trip, all summer long. Hungary, uh, Trinidad, Colombia, uh, lots of places in the world. Really cool stuff. Here's the problem about college students. They're poor. Almost all of them. So they get a big passion, but they got no money to go. So we had to help find a way to pay, help them pay the bill. By the way, add to that the fact that many of them were first-time believers. They, they're first-generation believers. So they don't have a list of family and friends that goes, oh, that's so wonderful. Here, let me write a support check. They had nobody to send letters to. And so we did a lot of things to try to raise money. We needed to raise in the 80s almost $100,000 a summer. That's how much money. It's a lot of money today. It's a huge number. And so one of the ideas we came up with was to create benefit concerts where we would reach out to very well-known artists and ask them to come and do a concert for the night. And we would... Our agreement would be that we would pack the house. Several thousand seats would be full. We would do all the promotion. We did. We wrote up advertisements and radio and newspapers and everything else on it. And all you need to do is come and do a concert. Middle of the concert, we're going to pass the hat and try to raise even more money without shame. But we need you to do all the, the concert. They're coming to hear you. And I, I'm not naming names because I don't want to embarrass them. But, um, yeah, just come, and by the way, we're not going to pay you uh, because, you know, we'll put you up for the night, maybe in somebody's house so we can save the hotel money, you know, that kind of thing. And we'll have great food and everything for you and all this. It was all fine for a while. And then I started to receive these things called contract writers. I didn't know anything about that, but I'm like, what's that about? And apparently, our, our, one of our uh, mother's famous lasagna was not good enough. Uh, and the water, you know the kind where you go to a fountain and push the button? How many do that still? You should. There's nothing wrong with it, okay? But, but, but how many insist that there's only one kind of water and I won't touch anything else? That's a writer. And I started getting a lot of those. And you know what? I stopped doing concerts. 
they told us how they wanted to come to the church from LAX. For real? You lost it. You lost me. That's not the Jesus arrival we're talking about. He he found a way to take a humble approach to connect with human beings. You seeing that? Here's a second picture. He found a way around fear. Fear. Uh, Most religions, you may be surprised to hear this, most religions worldwide invoke fear in their followers. It's a good control method. If I can make you afraid that I might just take you apart if you don't behave well or something. Even Christianity throws in this thing called legalism. We're going to control you. Not, not the Jesus. Uh, those of us that have been reading the Bible this year, we're near the, nearing the end. We're in Corinthians now. It's really cool. But most of us have a long stretch of reading um, some pretty fearful things in the Old Testament, right? You're, you're familiar with what I'm talking about, but, but big things this year. And we, some of us, for the first time, have come to understand a common fear among Jewish people in the Old Testament. Um, these words capture many of them. The burning bush of Moses the hot coals of Isaiah, this is Nancy. The extraterrestrial vision of Ezekiel. A person blessed with a direct encounter. Blessed is in quotes. Blessed with a direct encounter with God. Expected to come away scorched or glowing or maybe half crippled as in the case of Jacob. There were those fortunate ones. Jewish children also learned stories about them. The sacred mountain in the desert that proved fatal to everyone who touched it. Mishandle the Ark of the Covenant and you die. Enter the most holy place and you would never come out alive. Yet most Yet among people who, who actually walled off a separate section of the temple for God shrank from pronouncing and even spelling his name. Even to this day, there are Jewish books that have G-D for fear that they would do something irreverent spell God's name. That's done. It's a, it's a fear of God. I would add an un, unhealthy fear. But in the midst of that kind of world for centuries, Jesus, God made a surprise appearance as a baby. could be less scary than a newborn. I can't think of one. I think that's intended. In Jesus, God found a way of relating to human beings that didn't evoke fear. No 
we started to be we stumble indeed the gospels record Jesus imploring his people Jesus as a man now on a lake that we mentioned Galilee imploring his people fear not and then he added often the connecting because I'm with you don't run from me we would say run to me what a great changer Uh, one more impression that's hard to miss he came to us in a cradle and he went for us to a cross I've alluded to that Here's the add-on. All because of his love. Um, The cross was in play when he came in the cradle. Don't ask me to answer, was he conscious of it? Was he aware? All of those things I have no idea about. He was a baby. But the cross was in play came in the cradle. In fact, it's why I said earlier he came to carry the sin of all who repent and turn to God to a place where those sins belong, nailed to a cross. Such good theology. The Apostle Paul noted this in Galatians chapter 3, when he was hung on a cross about 30 or 33 years later. When he was hung on a cross, he took upon himself the curse for, it's that pronoun again, our wrongdoing. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Folks, what explains that? read so well by the by the Munsons earlier, but hear these words from the Passion Translation. For here is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only son as a gift. Now everyone who believes in him, everyone is everyone, will never perish but experience everlasting life. You see, God did not send his son into the world to judge and condemn the world, but to be its savior and to rescue it. So different. Which brings us to appropriately to communion. They fit together. There's a... Um, great song we're going to sing in a moment as the worship team comes to be set. I want you to tuck away your notes or your close your Bible for a second. And I want you to just ponder some words that in a minute you're going you're gonna to hear them sung and you're going to be among the singers. Uh, it's called Because of Your Love, which is really the heart of this message. 
because of your love. Why did he do it? You know he has the power. Why did he do it? Because of your love, my debt is paid. takes on extra meaning when you realize you couldn't pay it, neither could I. I hear from people often, late in their life, in the final chapter when they're about to turn for home, wondering, I thought I got it right. I thought I lived good enough. Can you affirm that? And in the most gentle, loving way I know, I say, no, you're a good person. I've known you for a few years or many years in some cases. But you're not good enough. I'm not being cute. If you're good enough, then no one has an explanation for the problem. No one. only make you good enough, but to guarantee for all of eternity that you'll be in his presence because of your love. Because of your blood, my sins are washed away. The song will sing, now all of my life I freely give because of your love I live. Lord, you gave your life for me. So I will live my life for you. Am I reading those words or are you embracing them now? That's the most devotional moment of this of this time. You gave your life for me, so I plan to live my life day by day. Because of your love. As servers join me down in the front, we're going to bring you communion, the bread and the cup. And um, I'd, I'd ask you to just ponder that. that personally, do you see the love in what he did? Jesus described that his bread represents his body given for us. And the blood represents what was poured out on a cross to cover our sin. It's why we're to take it as often as we do. And the, and the personal part of that is so that we, maybe Jesus knew something about modern people, that we remember him. Christmas, it's easy. We remember his birth. But his words are, do you remember me day by day to where you'll live for me until I call you home? So hold that, ponder those thoughts, take them in.